Coming to you from Brooklyn, New York, I'm Lisa Butterworth, and this is Caught Red-Handed. It seems like henna is absolutely everywhere these days. You see it online, at festivals, on Twitter, on Hands and Feet, on Facebook, on Bald Heads, on Brides but not on the digital airways, at least until now. Caught Red-Handed will have interviews with all your favorite henna artists from around the world talking about henna, but also straying as far as possible into other areas of interest and inspiration. I hope to add a new dimension to the artists I interview, giving you guys out there new insights into how they came to be the artists they are now. I hope also to talk to people in other fields tangentially related to henna, like tattoo artists, belly dancers, jewelry designers, etc. I'm open to your suggestions of people you'd like to learn more about, so please leave comments or email me and let me know. I've always loved podcasts and I associate them very closely with my artistic endeavors. I listen to podcasts a lot while I work on my art and I feel like they keep my mind busy while I'm working and distract me from that chattery voice in my head, allowing me to just focus on my work. Podcasts also follow me on bike rides, long train trips, flights, my commute to work, etc. On our blog, you will see links to some of my favorite podcasts, all of which have inspired me to create Caught Red-Handed. I hope that I can live up to even just one-tenth of their awesomeness. So let's see what's going on in the henna world lately. Um, For those of us here on the East Coast where we have seasons, bridal season is starting. The sun is finally out and people are starting to show show their skin and getting eager for henna. Um, I had kind of a slow marketing period last year where I didn't do much because of a new job. So this year I'm trying to pick up the pace and get caught up with my marketing. Um, I haven't been that busy though, so maybe that'll pick up later. I did have one interesting gig. It was with a bunch of uh, conservative Jewish women. I really didn't have any idea what I was walking into. It was a referral from a uh, maternity henna client I had. um, did her belly for both of her babies. Anyway, I walked in and there are all these women and they're cooking and laughing and drinking. And then uh, I discovered that I was actually there to henna, the um, birthday girl, and she was also pregnant and she wanted her belly done. She had on a long dress and she didn't know how else to show her belly to me. So she just pulled her dress off and sat there in her bra and underwear and stayed that way for the rest of the party. Anyway, it was hilarious and it's the usual... Uh, henna gig where you get to know these women and you share your art with them and they appreciate you and you leave feeling like a friend. It was really an awesome time and very funny. And I also had an interesting gig at the American Museum of Natural History. They were doing a session on global beauty, so they wanted me to be there to do henna, but for insurance purposes, I could not henna anyone. I couldn't even henna myself, so that was very weird. I spent five hours there talking to people about henna but 
telling them that they can't have it. And that's always so disappointing to not be able to henna people and then to have to tell people that they can't do it. Uh, but I did talk to a lot of people from all over the world and I taught them about henna. I just henna it on paper and I also showed them how to draw designs on themselves with these uh, skin safe markers. So it was interesting, but um, I don't know, a very weird way to present henna to people. Um, today's interview is with Darcy of hennalounge.com. I chose her because we have chatted for many, many, many hours on um, Gchat and I feel like I know her so well. We've been through so much together in our respective lives on our respective coasts. And so I thought I would feel very comfortable interviewing her, which I was, but I also was very surprised at the things that came out in the interview. I like to say you don't really know your friends until you interview them about what they do for a living or what interests them, what their inspirations are. So it was really interesting to ask questions that I thought I knew the answer to and then find out that I didn't really know my friend as well as I thought, at least not as an artist. So it was a really interesting conversation. Um, and I hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. So let's go ahead and get started with the interview. And uh, there'll be more information about the podcast at the end uh, where you can reach out to us and uh, where you can find out more information. All right, uh, enjoy the interview. I'm here today with Darcy of hennalounge.com. Hi, Darcy. Hi, Lisa. Or Kenzie. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm starting to go by my real name now, so um, hopefully people will be able to deal with that. So I just came home from work, and I was wearing my winter coat, but this is kind of like the official beginning of henna season. Um, I think out there in San Francisco, you kind of have henna season year round. So I just want to know, um, just to start out, what's going on in your henna life lately? Like, what have you been up to lately? What What's on the horizon? Well, um, henna season definitely is year round here in San Francisco. And we don't really have very nice weather any time of the year. <laughs> but, it's also, but it's also not horrible any time of the year. Yeah. So I think people kind of just get used to doing... Um, kind of whenever they feel like it. Yeah. Uh, but things are starting to shape up here, and um, there's a street festival that's happening on the weekends in San Francisco called Sunday Streets. And yesterday, me and a friend um, decided to do some rogue henna in the street. Nice, and nice. we just <laughs> set up a blanket and some pillows and sat down, and we wrote a chalk sign on the road that said, Henna this way. Nice. <laughs> Very rogue. Up. Yeah, very rogue, and started um, offering henna designs, and we were really surprised that people were um, eager to receive henna designs. Oh, cool. Some, sometimes San Francisco is a tough market for the festival types of henna. Oh, okay. So you're going to do it again? Was it that successful? Um, I may do it again the next time that thing happens in our neighborhood, but I don't know if I would oh, make it okay. a destination. It's not every Sunday? Um, I'm not sure. Last year it was every Sunday, but this year it seems to be less Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah. And then, and what's on the horizon? Well, um, this Friday I'm headed down to Cancun, Mexico. Nice. Your second home now. Yeah, it's my second <laughs> home. And I will be doing two Indian weddings while I'm down there. Nice. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Are the brides both Indian? Um, the Both of the brides are Indian and one of the grooms is Korean American. Why are they doing it in Cancun? Do you know? Well, I think sometimes with the Indian weddings, the, there's the possibility for a wedding to just be enormous, like 800 oh, guests. Oh, yeah. And 
for some people that's just not reasonable or they want something a little bit more intimate. So having a destination wedding kind of enables them to have a smaller event. Right. Um, Cause not everyone still, wants to fly there. Exactly. And yeah. it still enables them to extend an invitation to everyone, but they know that not everyone is going to be able to go to Mexico. I was just going to ask, do you think that it's mostly weddings of mixed couples that do these destination weddings? No, there's lots of um, just straight up Indian couples that are doing them. Yeah. Uh, some of them are, are mixed, but not all of them. It's just a personal choice for these couples, oh, okay. but it doesn't necessarily matter what their ethnicity is. Oh, okay. Oh, and then just for our listeners, uh, just a standard disclaimer, if we're talking about Indian weddings, we're not excluding Bangladeshis or Pakistanis. We're, we're just kind of using that as shorthand for South Asians. So sorry about that, but uh, <laughs> we, are, uh, we are picturing all of you and also Indians from Guyana or Fiji or whatever. Oh yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Um, you were telling me um, a few weeks ago that you have a lot of Fijian brides, Indian brides from Fiji. Why, why are there so many there? Um, I'm not sure, but maybe it's because it's not that difficult of a flight from San Francisco to Fiji. It's more like a Pacific Rim sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm not really sure the actual reasons why there's, we have a lot of Fijian Indians in California. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe. I didn't even know they existed. Oh, yeah. They actually, I think it's almost 40% of Fiji's population is of Indian descent. Oh. It's huge. Oh, my God. I had no idea. (laughs) Don't quote me on the exact percentage, but I want to say it's... It's um, a surprisingly large number. It is. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I had no idea. So um, what's the rest of your henna season look like? Well, um, there's going to be a number of weddings in the Bay Area. Um, and there's going to be another trip to Cancun in June. And hopefully Shoot, really? Yeah. <laughs> hopefully it's not going to be too um, broiling hot at that time of year. Yeah. Um, oh, but God, it is right. per, um, before the hurricane season, at least. So. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple of festivals that I do every year that I'm looking forward to. And uh, those are sort of my community outreach. Those are when I um, make contacts with a lot of families that might be doing a birthday party yeah. or a baby shower um, and also just kind of spreading the word about natural henna and trying yeah, to represent yeah, yeah, the good. traditional <laughs> designs. Oh, that's good to hear. So um, do you have any way of tracking how, um, how many of those people that you henna at the festivals turn into appointments or do you have uh, I... an idea of, of whether it works? It definitely works um, because I ha- I have met a lot of people at festivals that then will call me and do a birthday party or bat mitzvah um, yeah. or baby shower. Those are the main ones. Even some weddings come out of the festivals. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I don't have a way of knowing exactly what a percentage would be, but I ask people when they book with me how they found me. So um, oh, okay. I, us- yeah, I usually have an idea whether they found me on Yelp or on Google or a referral or met me somewhere prior do you actually ask them that or is that in your booking site that people can fill in it's in my booking site um not everyone fills it out Um, but i also ask people when i meet with them to kind of um remind myself where they came from yeah that's a good idea i should do that i always feel like i'm being nosy but it's good information it's just like making conversation (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) so how is how is this season Compared to last season, I know you have a lot of destination weddings. Is that like the, the biggest difference? Everything else is the same or are there other differences? 
it seems like there's a lot more wedding inquiries this year. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, I feel like people are procrastinating and waiting until just like a month or so before their weddings. Oh, no. So, <laughs> which is, yeah, it's hard to accommodate people so, so last minute. Um, yeah. But I am getting lots of inquiries. So I feel like it could be a pretty busy year. Well, that's good. Yeah. So just to kind of uh, start getting a little bit more deeper into the henna, um, you are probably the most uh, uh, robbed of henna (laughs) artists in terms of photographs on the internet. Um, I would say like every website that I go to that has stolen photos, most of them are from you. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of jealous because I'm not as uh, as, uh, stolen as you. But... um, one thing that's interesting when I look at these sites is your designs always jump out at me because the designs are just really clean. The lines are really clean and you're really good at mirroring. Like if you're doing bridal hands, you, you're really good at mirroring the design exactly on both hands. Um, so I was wondering, is this skill something that comes naturally to you or, or is it something that you really worked on? And if, if you did work on it and get that good through hard work, can you tell us all how you did it? Okay, that's a great question. Um, Well, I have an art background, so um, I'm used to looking at things and being able to copy them pretty precisely. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also use the same tricks that I would use if I were making a painting or another art project. And I look for landmarks on the hands. So when I'm laying out a pattern, I might look for the heel of the hand or like the um, lines, the creases in the hands or the Mm -hmm. fingers um, on the tops of the hands. I'll look for the um, wrist bone or on the ankles, that ankle bone, knuckle protrusions. Right. So I definitely use the, you know, body landmarks in order to lay out a design that's symmetrical. Okay. Um, and then the other thing that really works is I'm right-handed, and so I like to work from left to right. That means that after I've completed the left side, I can see it. And when I move over to the right side, my hand isn't covering the design. Yeah. So it's a lot more easy for me to get the size accurate gotcha. than working in reverse. Yeah. yeah. But it's uh, definitely something that does take practice and really careful observation. Yeah. Sometimes also I just don't get too concerned about it being absolutely perfect because people's bodies are actually slightly different sizes, like yeah. slightly different yeah. size feet or hands. And as long as I keep the continuity of the lines similar, like keep it nice and clean and don't make a totally different style on the second hand, even if it's not perfectly symmetrical, the um, neat and clean feeling still comes across. Yeah, so. it gives that impression that it's that it's exact. Yeah. And what about the cleanness of your lines? <laughs> like how do you how do you do that does that just come naturally to you that yeah I think I have a little bit of um obsession about the cleanliness of my lines and yeah. uh, in- interestingly doing henna has made me less uptight about being neat because I know it's temporary it's going to go away oh, in a right. couple of weeks yeah unlike a painting or something right right it's not permanent and it's not a tattoo so it doesn't actually have to be perfectly straight but um, there are techniques, and one of them is really simple. It's just moving away, um, move like whichever way your line is going, you want to be always pulling away from it. So you're kind of stretching out your henna into a little string. Even if you're yeah. not ac- actually using advanced techniques like draping the line, you still want to be kind of creating some tension in the oh, stream, of, yeah. uh, stream of the henna. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you know... I- 
I'm probably like the only person left who uses J bottles. And so like that whole draping thing is, is pretty typical for me, but I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like getting that tension, even when you're not draping the lines and just kind of pulling that henna out. Right. And I think a mistake that a lot of beginners make is they kind of try to sketch the line instead of yeah. just drawing it and touching it up in, in the spots if there's a skip or um, an uneven part. Some people kind of move back and forth on the line and that will create a really messy looking line. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I always like when I see photos of the work with the paste on when the paste actually looks really beautiful, almost like, you know, something embossed or sculpted. Yeah. And you can yeah, tell that embossed. the person has laid it down you know, exactly the way they want. And it has this, the line actually has a shape to it in 3D. So um, you were saying that you have a background in art. What kind of art did you do? Uh, My background in art, I, well, I grew up with an art, an artist mother and she actually taught at the school, at the school that I went to. Uh huh. (laughs) Oh, that's awkward. Yeah, it was awkward. And it was kind of funny because sometimes the students would call her mom when they really needed to get her attention. (laughs) That's cute. Yeah. Um, but the great thing about that was that I got to work with lots of different media because of um, being in art classes for years and years. So anything from pastels to watercolor to airbrushing um, and then printmaking like monotyping. And then later on in college, I took etching and um, lithography, uh, wow. printmaking. So, yeah, quite a variety of Yeah, of that's things. great. Yeah, color theory figure drawing, painting. Did you also do any kind of, um, I don't know what they're called, uh, like physical arts, like making a thing, objects? I think I remember um, you saying you used to I make I did a little bit of ceramic arts, oh, okay. but um, I'm not as good with the sculpture types of things. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think more like small scale and precise work tends to I don't know. I think I just kind of get caught up in the meditation of the precision of it, or especially if it's something pattern oriented or like gluing things or etching things. Yeah. I like things that are kind of time consuming and laborious. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. It can be kind of meditative, I think. Yeah. And I think I remember you saying once that you used to make jewelry. Oh, yes. That's true. Was that like um, real jewelry or just like, you know, lanyards at camp? Um, well, definitely land lanyards at camp, but, um, I kind of first got my entrepreneurial start making beaded jewelry and my parents had been making me babysit and I was making like two or $3 an hour when I was a teenager and I hated it. Um, and so then I learned how to make these kind of cool, like native American style earrings and I started making them. And then one day I decided to take them to school and sell them and I came home with a hundred bucks in my pocket (laughs) and I was like hmm I would have had to babysit for 50 hours with those horrible brats (laughs) (laughs) so after that I quit babysitting and I just started making things and I think ever since then I always felt that I could make a living with my hands that's a really good lesson to learn early that you know there's uh there are ways to to survive no matter what and people loved it who did you sell to well, at first I thought I was just going to be selling to uh, my girlfriends at school, like mm-hmm. selling them like pretty dangly earrings. And I made cute little jingly ankle bracelets. And then the boys started coming and asking me to make things like for their girlfriends or for their moms. So I was actually taking custom orders for Mother's Day from wow. boys in my class. <laughs> nice. So apart from that 
kind of entrepreneurial spirit and the knowledge that you could do that kind of thing. What is there anything from that experience that helps you in your current business? Something, you know, some lesson that you learned back then? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think it's more that I have a passion for doing that kind of thing, like having that personal connection with my customers um, yeah. and making something especially for them um, rather than it really being a, how I'm going to make money. It's more about the personal connection and buying yeah. and selling within the community, trading for things, other things that I might want. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's very much like henna, even though mm -hmm. you're not selling a thing. Yeah. It's a service or a thing. It's like in a way henna is kind of like jewelry um, yeah. that it is adornment that lasts for some time. So it's yeah. a similar concept. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of, it's bought by the consumer kind of in that same vein, you know, the idea of adorning yourself and doing exactly. something special for yourself. Exactly. So um, if, when you see some new style of henna design or you see like some kind of new tool, I know you're a cone user. I don't know if you have tried other tools, but how do you practice new styles or new tools? Do you have like, do you have an actual process that you go through? Um, usually I will... Well, for tools, I'll try anything. Um, when I first started out, I tried toothpicks. I tried um, the jacquard bottles. I even tried syringes. Um, wow. And it was quite an ordeal to get the syringes, yeah. <laughs> I might add. Um, and in terms of design, um, since it's not too difficult for me to copy things, I usually just look at a design and try to break down like where I think the starting point of the design is and then copy from there. Um, but sometimes there are unique techniques, especially in the Persian Gulf designs, where there's henna paste that may be laid down and then scraped away afterwards. Oh, uh, yeah. Have you seen some of those yeah. leafy shapes yeah. where it's like it's the veins of the leaves are actually scraped out with a toothpick or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, which is a really cool effect. Um, yeah. So those kinds of things I'll just try on a piece of paper or on my hand or my foot if I'm in the mood. When you're looking at a new style, like I know you just did a class at Henna Chai for um, golf designs, and what, like, let's just take golf as an example. What's uh, what is it that jumped out at you as like a primary characteristic or kind of like a foundational thing for golf designs? Oh, that's a really good question. So I feel like a lot of people have a difficult time grasping the golf designs and they spend a lot of time copying the designs and then they just always end up looking really static and they don't have that flow to them. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one of the main characteristics of the golf designs is their spontaneity and that they are, they are unplanned. They're not being copied from another design. Yeah. And um, the secondary characteristic, of course, would be the use of negative space. Um, but when I was researching um, how I was going to teach that class, I realized that there's actually two styles of golf design. Uh, one of them is sort of more floral oriented, and then the other one involves like larger areas that are often a geometric or circular shape that are then filled with smaller elements. Oh, yeah, and like the little... Asha stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple t um, main ways of designing a golf design. And the first one, I would say, is to, instead of thinking which design elements you're going to use and where you're going to put them, is actually to map out where the negative space is going to go. Oh, okay. 
and then do your designs wherever that negative space isn't. And I actually had a really hard time getting through to some of the Indian students because, mm. of course, with the Indian designs, we're used to just filling it all up, right? Yeah, like, yeah exactly. If there's a space, we're going to fill it up. Yeah. Um, and so it took a couple days to get through um, and to actually say, like, let's identify where the negative space is. Let's actually point it out. Let's label it. And let's see what the shape of it is. Yeah. Uh, so that really um, helps solidify, I think, the kind of process of creating that type of golf design. Yeah. And that's really like such a foundational thing. And, you know, it's like when Nick and I teach Moroccan, we teach them about, you know, thinking about the overall structure of things and, you know, just having, having that, that basis of the structure is so important. And then you, it's not really about copying motifs. It's about, it's about having that, that general layout of things. So Exactly. And I feel like it's the same with the golf designs. Like there's certain motifs that you don't ever see in the golf designs. Like you don't ever see animals or faces or figures. Um, And then pretty much anything else is possible. It could be geometric. It could be floral. It could just be totally bizarrely abstract. Yeah. There's some really crazy stuff going on in those designs. And it's almost like because they are limited by you know, that geography that you're talking about, that flow, and they're limited by not having like human or animal figures. It's like they can just go off into outer space if they want to. Yeah. And some of it is very psychedelic looking or even um, using kind of fractal patterning. Yeah, totally. That's very true. It's a really exciting style. And I feel like there's no real limits. And um, I think when people try to define it by saying like it consists of these elements, then it does the whole art a disservice because that um, particular style is really without limits. Yeah. I don't really do much golf and I like it when I see it, but I don't know, for some reason I haven't ever really wanted to get that into it, but I think maybe now, you know, when you're talking about the geography of the negative space, I'm really going to look at them differently. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get into it. I don't know. Well, I think the other thing that's tough about it is that um, at least for myself, I really don't get any requests for it, um, from yeah. my bridal customers. Yeah. So I don't get the opportunity to really, um, do a full golf bridal design on somebody. Yeah. And you just do it for, for pleasure. Exactly. So I'm going to go off on, not really a tangent cause it's still henna related, but it's, it's like a little less technical. So, um, this is like one of those job interview questions, um, <laughs> but I want to know if you could hen- henna anyone living or dead, but they obviously are alive when you henna them. You know, this is fantasy land. Um, <laughs> anyone living or dead, who would it be? What body part and what design? <laughs> hmm, that's a good idea. Um, I would like to henna Sting and his <laughs> wife, Trudy Styler. Um, nice. <laughs> Sting is a longtime crush of mine. Aww. And uh, he's also a henna aficionado. He and his wife oh, actually right. have had henna before on numerous occasions and they enjoy it cool. and i would like to show them how it's really done cool oh <laughs> um, yeah definitely i've seen and, the stuff they've got yeah and you know as much as i would like to probably henna his chest or something um i think i would like to maybe henna his feet or hands and feet That'd be um cool. and just stick with something really traditional and beautiful and um something that would be visible to everybody yeah that's very cool. I forgot that I remember those pictures that was back in the day when it was like Madonna and Sting and 
Gwen Stefani. Those are like the only photos of any henna anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Liv Tyler. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh my that God. was one of my favorite spreads in the one of, I think it was in Harper's. Yeah. Um, oh my God. That's so crazy. The olden yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> so talking about the olden days, um, when you first started doing henna, did you think right away, oh, I'm going to make a business of this? Um, did you start right away going, oh, I'm going to hit henna Indian, sorry, South Asian brides? Or, you know, what was your mindset when you first picked up the henna cone? Oh, well, when I first picked up the henna cone, I just thought it was really cool and I wanted to do it on myself. Hmm. Um, and I did henna maybe like once a year for fun um, for probably about, I don't know, seven or eight years. So <laughs> probably less than a dozen times in total over that period. Oh, okay. And then it happened kind of suddenly. I wasn't really planning to do henna for a living, but when I quit my corporate job, I had an art opening and I thought it would be fun to do henna at the opening just as a an entertainment for the people that were viewing our show. Yeah. And I was really shocked that people were into it. And I'm sure my designs were not very good, <laughs> but um, people seemed to love them. And so I started practicing and I got models um, from Craigslist to work with and practiced on myself and took pictures. And um, I didn't have an Indian bride for a couple of years. I don't think um, I didn't really have any good examples of bridal work at that time. Yeah. Um, but then I started doing larger scale and more intricate pieces. And then the brides started to come around. How did the brides first come around? Like what got you, what got you out there to them? Well, at the time there were not a lot of other henna artists that were really advertising and I was just simply advertising on Craigslist and I had a really rudimentary kind of janky website <laughs> and, um, but at the same time, there wasn't anyone else with like a fancy website around. And there were just maybe one or two other people advertising on Craigslist. And that was pretty much it. Um, so there wasn't a lot of competition in the area. And I think a lot of Indian brides were um, going through their old school sources, like just going word of mouth through like their yeah. aunties and cousins. Yeah. Um, but it was more of the, you know, younger, more savvy brides that started coming to me. So um, like the whole Silicon Valley yeah, South exactly. Asians. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like I have a really savvy um, clientele. They're very modern and um, really engaged in what's happening in the Bay Area. You were talking about how you started and just kind of, you know, doing it for fun. And then, you know, the fact that it took off because there weren't that many people. So looking at the henna industry, the field of henna now, what do you think are the biggest barriers to someone entering the field at this point? Wow. Well, there's some pretty serious barriers. Um, <laughs> one is that there's um, a lot of people that are advertising their henna services. Um, and it's also really hard to know how good they actually are because it a good amount of those are not using their own photos for their yes. <laughs> advertisements. Yeah. Um, but it takes a while to get your um, search search engine ranking up there. So people yeah. that are just starting out could have a really hard time um, if they're just relying on advertising through their websites. So they really need to be working with their word of mouth and networking in order to develop their business. Yeah. So it's definitely a lot tougher than it used to be. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I feel like the 
South Asian population has grown in a big way, at least here in the Silicon Valley area over the last decade. So we have a lot more customers now um, than when I was first starting out. Yeah, that's true. So there's advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. And then there's the, henna's more mainstream too. So you're yeah. getting other gigs. Yeah, that's true. It's like, especially with all the like popular, like Bollywood movies and independent Indian films that have kind of made it big in the U.S. Like yeah. Indian styled things like paisleys and like shawls and even wearing like bindis or yeah. um, a, like a kurta ha, have become totally normal for you know, not just Indians, but anyone to wear. Well, well maybe in California. <laughs> yeah. In Here California. in New York, no, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> Unless the kurta yeah. comes in black. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, oh, in terms of barriers, um, the quality of henna work has really skyrocketed. Yeah. So there's some really amazing artists living all across the United States and Canada now. So the type of quality of work that you used to see only in India is now kind of reaching the United States. Like people are really focusing. So it takes years to develop that kind of skill. And so a beginner artist trying to enter the field is really competing against um, some really top notch artistry. Yeah. 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 I know. I, I remember when I started and people started offering me money and I'm like, I've only been doing this for three months and I'm really crappy at it why do you want to give me money for this but uh yeah i don't think i could come out in this uh in this climate of the henna field now with that kind of work and actually charge for it right right um, well i always was inspired by your work oh um, thanks <laughs> you're one of my my first henna idols well the tables have turned because now i'm inspired by you so that's one of the reasons i chose you for my first interview for this podcast but also because we talk all the time about henna so i figured yeah. we should take it should take it public and let other people listen in <laughs> yeah all the voyeurs <laughs> yeah so to um to continue with that idea what what um I guess people, but also like what, um, what are the major influences on your henna work? Um, like other henna artists specifically or other art forms, even like music or cinema or something. Do you have, do you feel like there, you have some big influences out there? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, there's definitely other henna artists that are, I am inspired by, um, I just like to see that really innovative, in precise work and the, one of the artists that I really love is Rebecca Friedner. Oh yeah. Um, her style is it you can look at it and tell that it's definitely not classical Indian or classical Moroccan. It's definitely her own unique style, but um it keeps a traditional element somehow. It always yeah. feels uh, very intentional and um it's not like it's just casually slapped on henna. Yeah, so yeah. I really admire her dedication to her art form and her precision in her work. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't feel like she's copying it from a specific source. Like some artists will like look to and you know textiles or architecture. Yeah, and, and you and can see like a direct quotation almost. Right, right. It just seems a little bit too literal for me sometimes, yeah. mm -hmm. um, which makes it feel a little bit static. Yeah. So her work never feels static to me. Yeah. Um, and then um, the all the anonymous Persian Gulf artists and <laughs> Sudani artists. I know they're so anonymous to us. It's terrible. Yeah, I feel bad not being able to 
um, say, wow, there's this wonderful artist and her name or his name is. Yeah. Well, maybe that'll come because for a while the Indian ones were very anonymous to us here in the U.S. And yeah. you know, now we're like Ekta Shah and, you know, all these people. I just name one. But, yeah, there are tons of them out there and all these books that we can get now. So maybe the golf people will start putting out books and we can put names uh-huh. and faces together. Yeah, that would be amazing. Do you Are you influenced in your henna art by artists and other medium? You know, I'm definitely inspired by other artists just for being artists and for being innovators. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that I say, oh, I think I'm going to try to, you know, bring an Andy Goldsworthy outdoor <laughs> ephemeral sculpture yeah. into my henna work yeah. <laughs> because it doesn't um, translate very well. But I'm definitely inspired by artists who are doing groundbreaking kinds of things. So like the spirit of what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Like just doing something that is so far out there um, that nothing like it has ever really been done before. And actually, I think in terms of artists that I'm really inspired by, I would say the people who do work with nature, like Andy Goldsworthy. Uh-huh. And um, there's also, I should have looked it up before doing the podcast, but uh. um, there's a, a guy who's local to the Bay Area who does um, these huge like crop circle types of designs, in often in sand. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. And I think maybe t- you pinned them someplace. <laughs> yeah, I definitely probably yeah. pinned them. Those um, are really cool. Yeah, they're really cool, and I feel like they're really groundbreaking in that, well, literally. (laughs) Literally. Yeah. Um, And he's just kind of doing it for the sake of doing it. There's not really money involved with that kind of art, although I'm sure he may get commissioned to do pieces and he sells um, fine art prints of some of the photographs of them. But really, he's just going out there to make this impact um, that's temporary. Yeah. I love love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that aspect. There's some guy, I think, in France or Switzerland who does that in the snow. Oh, and that's he cool. he just, like, stomps it down. It's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. And it's so labor-intensive as well, so I can yeah. really relate to that, like, just the med- meditation of creating something. Yeah, and also the fact that nobody's going to see it, you know, just walking past it. You know, they'll see something, but they won't really get the full feel of what it is. Exactly. That's pretty cool. And then I'm inspired by some digital artists. There's um, Sanjay Patel, who um, he did a whole um, Hindu gods and goddesses book that's kind of done in a digital cartoon sort of style. Oh, okay. Um, really colorful, and it's just, it's really cute, um, but still very artistic. And I noticed in his designs, there's a lot of patterning, lots of dot work that I think would be really fun to bring into the henna. Um, and I feel like a lot of the time people... When, they are thinking about henna, they often think about dots. And I feel like we've gotten so far away from dots now that we have all these tools like our cones and our jacquard bottles. But in the old days, a lot of henna designs really did consist of just a lot of dots. Yeah, that's very true. So do you feel like, like when you're doing henna, but any kind of artwork really just you know, the kind of work that you just do for yourself, not necessarily for a client. Do you have music in your head or is there like a rhythm that you hear when you're henning? Oh, I almost always have music on in my house. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, So there's actual music uh, happening. And sometimes if I'm going to do a bridal party, um, I get 
kind of antsy if there is no music happening in the party. Um, so hmm. it actually really helps me. It could be anything. Like they could put on hip hop or um, yeah. like a Bollywood soundtrack. It really yeah. doesn't matter to me. But I do like to have some kind of rhythm. It kind of helps keep me going. And also um, music just gives me something to focus on besides lines and dots and yeah. swirls. Yeah, kind of keeps your brain out of judging and thinking about what you're doing too much yeah exactly do you have a preference for the kind of music or or like the type of rhythm or something um not necessarily lately at home I've been listening to a lot of deep and progressive house or soulful and Chicago house um which isn't everybody's taste (laughs) um so if I have customers over I usually go for more of like a chill out kind of electronica ethnic ambient electronica exactly like (laughs) fusion fusion style that um hopefully doesn't have any lyrics that are overly offensive yeah (laughs) um yeah every now and then i'll put together a playlist that has more like old bollywood songs especially like the really older bollywood stuff the modern stuff is really not that great and um I even noticed there's some dubstep in today's Bollywood and that's just a oh my god that's a, a deal breaker for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love those old I have a couple CDs of the of the old singers like Asha Bosle and those people. I love that yeah, stuff. So so nice. And it just feels so comforting. I've heard those things so many times that every time I hear it it just is comforting and familiar. Hmm. Yeah. You're also a trained musician, so do you feel like is there anything that you bring from being a musician into your henna art? Um, that's an interesting question. Well, both mathematics and henna are, I, I mean, music and henna are, have ma- elements of mathematics. In oh, okay, I see where you're going, uh, yeah. Yeah, sorry, a little dyslexia I thought that there. was just a really weird Freudian slip. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. Okay, yes. Um, so, and also music is its own language. Um, you know, reading music and notes it, is a secret language. Um, if you, well, it's not a secret, but it's a secret if you don't know how to do it. It's not a language Um, like, like the words. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But (laughs) I mean, there's, you know, notes are essentially like letters and then there's sounds like how long you hold a note or how quickly or, um, and there's different moods and styles and, uh, meters. So henna is all, is the same in a lot of ways because we have all of our elements that we used to combine to make a song so to speak um so yeah there's definitely similarities and one of I think if someone had a musical background and didn't know how to do henna designs maybe something that could help them would be to say like music usually it has a, a melody that's pleasing it flows for a while and then it comes back to its roots so it, it's not going to be too random there, it's always going to come back to the same you know chunks of elements and yeah. with henna designs one of the big mistakes I see a lot of beginners make is they just put too many different elements together and they yeah. never really come back to their theme yeah um, or they don't really have any sort of pattern within their theme yeah and it just feels discordant Exactly, yeah. and it's kind of, that would be a little bit more like Ornette Coleman, I guess. <laughs> um, like, which, is, which isn't bad. 
no no but it's maybe not perfect for like a bridal henna yeah maybe not maybe she doesn't want jazz all over her <laughs> exactly <laughs> big messy jazz thing yeah I, some people ask me like how do you do this how do you how do you just create these things out of your brain and I'm like it's just notes it's I don't know they're just things I have in my head and I just play them in one order and you know, I'm dating a jazz musician and I see that his solos and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of like how I do henna. I just have like, I figure out the chord, you know, the, um, the key that the song is in and then just play it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it could be like a, a geometric key or yeah. a, a, <laughs> a, floral, <F-sharp. laughs> a floral key. <laughs> yes, definitely. Of course, like F sharp, you know, you have all those angles in there and floral key would be B flat. <laughs> all right okay we're digressing um so to go away from the this like super trippy abstract stuff um I want to talk about the business you and I have chatted many 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 hours online and um we talk a lot about marketing I've gotten a lot of great advice from you which has really helped me and um I don't know how to ask this question because I could just say like, give me a big brain dump of everything you've learned about marketing, but maybe just what, what advice would you give people who have maybe practiced for a year or two, they're doing it for money here and there, you know, maybe at a local cafe, like what do you think is, are some key marketing things that they could be doing to take it to the next level? Well, one of the marketing techniques that has worked really well for me is, giving out postcards and I get a lot of feedback on them. People want, sometimes want them just to frame as an art piece or have on their refrigerator or Mm -hmm. on their desk. Um, And I get calls sometimes as late as three years later, people saying, I have your postcard. I got it from you three years ago and now I'm finally getting married and I want to hire you. So the having even though we have this digital world where we can Google search for anything, sometimes having a little physical something or other um, really solidifies that bond between the potential customer or a repeat customer yeah. and the vendor. So that's something I um, I don't really spare any expense. I go ahead and spend the extra bucks and get the nice rounded corners, a nice beautiful glossy postcard yeah. and. They're so cheap now, though. It's you know they, even they are cheap. you know you can get yeah. a thousand for pocket change. So yeah, there's there's no excuse yeah. now not to have beautiful um, promotional materials. And I think you're right that in the in this digital world where we can just send information so quickly and find information, there's something really precious about a piece of paper that's really beautiful, like buying a really beautiful book. It's so it's such a treasure now. Exactly. And the other thing I notice is when I do kids parties. Kids are so savvy now that they will come and say, um, do you have a card? Because I want to give it to my mom. I want this for oh, my, yeah. my next birthday party. So it's really nice to have something physical to give them. Because if I just said, oh, it's hennalounge.com. Well, it you doesn't know, stick. Like, yeah, an eight-year-old kid may not remember that, but they can definitely hand my card to their mom. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, and you can also leave them in cafes or Um, yoga studios actually I've gotten quite a lot of business leaving my cards with Mm. a yoga studio where the um, the owner of it is a friend of mine so she definitely you know helps to promote me but having that physical thing to give to people really seems to help yeah and then um, this seems obvious but having a website with lots of content on it um, really helps people in the cyber world find you 
So, you know, updated content, updated photographs, maybe a blog if you're into that. <laughs> yeah. So some people say websites are dead and that it's all about Facebook and Twitter. What do you think? Well, I've tried a couple avenues on Facebook, and one of them is just my personal Facebook page, and the other is the business page. Mm -hmm. And I really, um, what I realize is that my customers are my community. And um, although, of course, I get, you know, strangers, um, a lot of the time my customers are coming through a referral from somebody that I already know or already worked with. Mm -hmm. So I, I find I actually get more customers through my personal um, page than I do through my business page. Oh, so, and I don't think I've ever gotten a customer through Twitter. <laughs> Do you tweet much? <laughs> um, I have my Twitter account hooked up with Hootsuite. So if I make a blog post or um, post a picture on Facebook, right. it gets posted automatically on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. But I don't really interact that much there. Um, one of the reasons is that the 140 character format, um, even though I realize that it's a portal, I'm very visually oriented and yeah. I like to scroll through pictures rather than snippets of text like pinterest yes yes pinterest <laughs> it's my catnip oh my gosh it's totally for catnip. a visual person and you know i try and explain it to people and they're like what's so special about it i'm like well pictures yeah lisa the, yeah. Co the computer's full of pictures what of it <laughs> <laughs> oh i love pinterest yeah and um actually i've been sending my customers to pinterest to look for henna images that inspire yeah. them so that they're not limited to just choosing from my oh, designs. Yeah. yeah, that's my, I've been doing that too, because I get bored when they just pick my old stuff. Yeah, same And there's here. so much good stuff out there, it's just mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I find more new stuff there than I do anywhere else, because when you do a Google search, you just, I don't know, you get so It's the same crap. old stuff. Yeah, and it's so much crap, you have to wade through a lot of crap, but you know, something about pinning something to your Pinterest board just people put quality up most for the most part yeah it's all beautiful stuff and I think the thing with Google's algorithms is that things that have gotten a lot of hits will come up closer to the top yeah and so it's the same stuff that keeps popping up while yeah, we want to see new things yeah that is so very true that's a good point Google's image search is just not really that beneficial for images unfortunately yeah. no you're absolutely right I didn't even think about it that way so anything else about marketing that you think is like one of those big key marketing things that's been good for you? Well, really the best things for me have been postcards um, my in my website, and I do blog. So um, I've gotten really great feedback on my um, blog, and it, my blog and website are integrated. So, um, you know, the blog posts appear on my website. Yeah. Um, but people say that they really like seeing those pictures and little, um, you know, articles about mixing henna or making henna or, um, you know, travel pictures. People seem to be wanting that personal connection. And yeah. I think the blogging enables people to have a personal connection with you without really um, necessarily having to be your friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They can just kind of live vicariously without, without uh, talking to you directly. Yeah, and I think it also builds a certain amount of trust because if they see that you're working with customers and doing these beautiful designs regularly yeah. or that, you know, people trust you enough to send you down to Mexico or... Yeah, um, and you're not you... just some robot putting out keywords that are going to catch their attention. Exactly, yeah. and also the fact that we are real people and we do real things, like we pick up trash on the beach or, <laughs> you know, we may do rogue henna one day even yeah. though 
we really, you know, are known for our bridal work. Um, I think that just knowing that we're a real person kind of uh, makes people want to hire you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because otherwise you're just looking at these n names and photos on a website and you don't really have that connection. Exactly. And then also I think, you know, we were talking before we started recording about Black Henna and I think that's also really important to show your henna making process you mentioned that you put that on your blog that people see that you're actually really invested in the quality of your art and also in the quality of the product that you use and I think exactly. that illustrates it so well because anybody can say yeah yeah I make my own paste but um something else to actually see the process and then it also gives you legitimacy like oh this girl actually knows how to do this she's not right. just drawing and I think it's also um about sharing um instead of like saying oh well my recipe is a secret and I'm yeah. not going to share it with you and I'm yeah. not going to tell you how I do it yeah um like I would rather the other artists in my area know how to make a safe paste and use it on their customers yeah and get business than even one person be hurt by black henna yeah and it raises the level of quality for the entire community even if Absolutely. they even if they are your competition Absolutely. So segueing from that, what do you think the current state of the art of henna is? Like for either from the point of view of a henna artist or from our client's point of view? Well, I think um, now that henna has become, you know, mainstream, I guess, or it's well known, most people know what yeah. it is and have seen it. Um, I feel like it's kind of like any other industry in that now you have access to all levels and all prices of henna at least in the area that I live. So there are very cheap and very bad quality um, artists. And there's yeah. also very expensive and very high end and high quality artists. So there's, I feel like now there's more something for everyone, um, yeah. which is good because people can see the difference between a good henna and a not so good henna. Yeah. Um, and they also have options so they don't necessarily feel trapped. Like they don't necessarily have to go with really expensive artists because that's the only artist there is. Um, so it's nice for people to feel like they can have options. So maybe somebody wants to go ahead and spend top dollar for the best bridal henna artist in the area, but they're going to spend a little bit less for their six year old's birthday party. And they yeah. have that option. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes uh, um, brides will hire me to do their henna and then hire somebody cheaper to do the party. Exactly. Except for the time that they um, discovered that your work is just way nicer and had to throw the... <laughs> well, that was the, the other way around. Out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so awkward. Oh, anyway. Um, so do you think do you think that also our customer base is different? Like, what do you think the, this, the knowledge of our customer base is? Or the taste of our customer base. I think our, our customers are a lot more knowledgeable than they used to be um, because now henna has been being used in the United States for at least 15 years or more, um, you know, within the popular culture. Yeah. So people have seen black henna and they know that it's not good for the most part. And people also know what natural henna looks like and that it's not just a temporary tattoo. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I get mostly requests for more traditional types of henna, even with the younger kids and teenagers. Yeah. And so I feel like that's something that's really changing. It's not really people coming for temporary tattoos anymore. It's more yeah. about people that want to celebrate the, you know, more ritualistic aspects of it. 
even though they've kind of incorporated the um, rituals into their own culture. Yeah. Yeah, but they're interested in it as a cultural thing and exactly. seeing it for what it is. I find clients, especially bridal clients, are asking me, um, you know, really specifically about the kind of designs I do and what my experience is. And, and when, when I meet them for consults, they're actually asking me really informed decisions, showing that they really understand the art. And it's really nice to to be able to talk to them on that level. Whereas in the beginning, it was always kind of defending henna against temporary tattoos. And this isn't, you know, it doesn't come in this color and it, I can't do kanji and tribal, sorry. <laughs> right. So and nice also thing. now I think people do notice the stylistic differences. So even a few years ago, I'd have someone say, yeah, I really want a Moroccan design, you know, like a paisley or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, having to explain to them in a tactful way that the Paisley design is not a Moroccan design. Yeah. Um, so people now seem a lot more savvy. They're like, oh, yeah, well, when I was in Morocco, I had these really geometric patterns. Or when I was in Rajasthan, I had my hands completely covered in henna designs. Yeah. Um, so people have hands-on experience with um, either their travels or maybe a wedding that they attended here in the area. Yeah. Um, and even kids seem to know, which oh, is yeah. amazing. Yeah, I get these little kids. They're like five. They're like, "Well, my best friend at school is Yemeni, and she brings it in. And she does it for me after class." <laughs> like, wow, tell me all about it. You know, I mean, what an awesome thing to be so young and to be exposed to all these cultures. It's incredible. I'm jealous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah same here. So, um, where do you think henna? Like, what do you think the future of henna, as, you know? In, as an art is going and or maybe like, where do you wish it would go? What do you, what do you wish henna would become? Oh, um, well, I feel like henna, we often say, Oh, it's a trend, but it's been something that's been done for like thousands of years. And so mm. it doesn't really seem like uh, very trend oriented to me, but I do yeah. think that um, with the quality level being higher and higher in the West, that there's definitely room for, something more avant-garde. Um, so getting away from the fake tattoos and the really traditional things, but maybe going into something more experimental, like larger scale body art. Yeah. Uh, and I think the, this sort of festival um, culture with the Burning Man's and the um, Lucidity festivals, all these types of things, mm -hmm. um, pe people are really into self-expression and henna is a, a wonderful way for them to do that. And it is ritualized because it is for these special occasions. And it's just not for the ones that we associate henna with, yeah. um, like the Hindu or Muslim yeah. occasions, but it's its own culture and almost a religion that's emerging. Yeah. So it's true. It is really ritualistic, you know, apart from its role in the cultures it comes from, it is very ritualistic in the sense that you have to devote time to it and you have to take care of it, you know, while the paste is on and then you have to take care of it once it's off. And it's, you know, it's really, it's really a commitment unlike, you know, getting your hair done or your nails done. Right. It's not instant gratification. Yeah. yeah. And I think our, with slow food movements and people mm -hmm. focused on more natural things and organic things and ceremonial things that henna is a perfect complement to that slowing down of yeah. taking the time. And then also that, you know, the act of being a henna artist and henning another human being, you have that ritual of contact with them, sharing something, giving them something, kind of taking care of them in a way too. Yeah. And it's almost like, 
you know, like you were saying, the slow food movement, it's kind of like having people over for dinner and cooking for them. Right. And usually when a, a customer leaves, I feel like a friend is leaving the house yeah, that yeah. I'm leaving, leaving their house because we have had that personal physical connection and just spent, you know, anywhere from like one to five hours talking about everything that you can imagine. And yeah. especially when it's like right before something that's a big deal for them, whether it's a graduation or a wedding or a birth, yeah. um, they're all big, important milestones for people. Yeah, I never knew when I was a kid that I would spend my adult years holding the hands of women for hours on end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's why I feel like I need to henna sting because I need to make make up for all the hand holding of women and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and go back to your childhood crush. Exactly. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the things I, I can't remember if I've talked about this with you, but I've talked about it with a lot of other people. And this is kind of like my own struggle is that I'm always comparing myself to other artists. And I think that the growth of social media and the internet makes that problem. Well, I, I'm calling it a problem, but you know, it makes it much easier to compare yourself to other people. And I was mm. just wondering what your own, um, not problem, but you know, like if you have an issue when you see other people who are better than you and, and what are the thoughts and feelings that come to you when you see stuff like that? Well, when I see people that are better than me and there are a lot of them, um, it's inspiring because it makes me want to try new things and it makes me want to better myself. And there's always going to be people that are better and people that are worse. Yeah. And just like in any activity, like it could be in um, musicianship or in athletics or yoga or um, painting, anything really. Um, but I feel like artists have always played off of each other. Um, and I see no reason that we shouldn't be doing that now. Yeah. Um, and with art, sometimes it's hard to say like one thing is better than another. Like somebody may have better line quality, but much more innovative or less innovative designs or they, someone may be really innovative, but be kind of sloppy. Um, or someone may just be really precise and innovative, but still not have a very flowing style. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and it's also in the eye of the beholder too. Exactly. Exactly. I never get tired of seeing people's, henna work and whether it's just henna smeared on the palm like in the most primitive manner mm, yeah I was saying that I really like seeing the um crazy intricate work of Harun Dalal who he, he does really fine designs and a lot of illustrations that are they're not just folk art but they are um a little bit more sophisticated and I feel like he's really taken the henna to a really extreme level of precision and um artisticness yeah um but at the same time, I'd be just as happy to see someone with their just their fingernails dyed with henna. Yeah. Um, and so, as far as comparing myself to other artists, um, I don't. I'm not hard on myself at all about it um, because I feel that henna's just about being in the moment and self-expression and doing the best that you can for the circumstances that you're in. Um, yeah. But I am definitely inspired by other people's art. Oh, that's good to hear. But I do see some people that are saying, oh, well, I have a long way to go before I'm going to be any good. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're maybe not getting the full enjoyment out of the process of learning and improving because they're constantly comparing themselves Yeah. yeah. instead of just saying, wow, this is something really cool to look up to. Yeah. 
So um, we're at the end of our hour now, and I know you have another, uh, you have a customer coming. So I just wanted to ask you, are there any questions that you wish I had asked you already? Oh, I didn't even think that far ahead. Um, <laughs> or is there any subject that, you know, is kind of near and dear to your heart that you want to mention? Um, hmm. I guess not, not in particular, but maybe um, about henna artists coming together as a community. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's a good point. And it seems like people are coming together as a community, and now there's conferences and stuff. But, um, yeah, that's something that interests me is – people um, collaborating rather than competing. Yeah. And so you had a really good experience at Henichai, right? I did. Um, I didn't sleep a whole lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess that's a good sign of a good time, right? <laughs> yeah, but I had a, a really great time, and I felt like I learned a lot from my students because I give them um, a construct to work within, and then what they do within that construct is just totally mind-blowing. And so... I felt like I was learning as much um, as a teacher as, or possibly even more um, than they were learning from me. So that was really exciting. Oh, that's very cool. And are you teaching again this year? Well, I'm planning to teach at Hennachai again in February. Oh, okay. And um, it hasn't been announced yet, but I may be teaching in Australia um, in April. So awesome. a year from now. Oh my God. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm, keeping my fingers crossed for that one. Wow. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm feeling more positive about teaching again. And I've been always teaching at the, within the library system and teaching private classes, um, for local artists for quite a long time. But the whole idea of being with other henna artists is, um, it's pretty exciting. There's a lot of energy and a lot of work. Um, but it is really fun. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, that's pretty much it for the interview. Um, one last question. Who who else would you like me to interview for future podcast episodes? Ooh, future podcast episodes. And it can be anyone, although I don't know if I can get Sting, but <laughs> you try. <laughs> well, I think um, Debbie um, Debbie Varvey of yeah. Henna Crone yeah. would, would be really interesting to interview. Um, she comes from a really... Um, wonderful fine art background and her style is so unique that it combines that sort of like almost like a tattoo style with the henna uh, while never really going too far from the traditional uh, elements it never feel never feels flashy to me and I would be really uh, curious to know how she maintains that balance yeah yeah she's amazing I I already have her on my list so oh good (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyone else you can think of um well, have you thought about interviewing Noam? Noam? Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. I think he um, might be on my list. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. I feel like he's he's a great speaker with a lot of insights into the culture of henna. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a really educational background. So yeah. I feel like he would be really exciting to interview. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think it would be an easy interview. I'd just be like, tell me the history of henna. And he would just have it all completely mapped out and beautifully put so yeah he definitely puts puts it in the clear terms for the layman but still sophisticated enough to keep everyone's interest yeah plus he speaks like urartic or something i don't even know how to pronounce it (laughs) yeah me neither (laughs) all right so debbie and noam that should be that should be good so all right well thank you for um 
being available for me today. I know we've been trying, we've been planning for a long time to talk and I'm glad that it finally happened. Yeah, and, me too. Uh, have a great trip to Mexico and everywhere else you're going. Thanks so much. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'll look forward to hearing the final podcast and the future ones. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay, so that's the end of episode one of the Caught Red-Handed podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please subscribe via iTunes. Also, feel free to review and leave feedback for the podcast. I would really appreciate that. And please also reach out to me with any suggestions, things you'd like to know about various artists, people you'd like me to interview, or anything else that strikes you. You can reach me at webmaster at kenzie.com. The podcast is also blogging at caughtredhandedpod.wordpress.com, and please like our page on Facebook. Thanks to Darcy for being such a calm, collected, and very interesting interviewee. You made my maiden voyage so much easier. Thanks to Shlomi Cohen for all the music in this podcast. You can find out more about him and find out about his debut album at shlomicohen.com, S-H-L-O-M-I-C-O-H-E-N.com. Thanks also to Nash Karam for her gorgeous photo that adorns the blog and the Facebook page. That's it for me, Lisa Butterworth, and this first episode of Caught Redhead. Thanks.